This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each episode we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Welcome to week four of our Summer Impossible season. Uh, We are continuing our deep dive into the entire Mission Impossible franchise by diving into Mission Impossible 3, written by Alex Kurtzman, Robert Orsi, J.J. Abrams, and directed by J.J. Abrams. And we're also talking about Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, written by Josh Applebaum and Andre Namek, directed by Brad Bird. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayeros. Hi. Okay, so uh, we're getting back into some Mission Impossible fun. Uh, next week in our summer schedule is going to be Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. <laughs> Very excited to talk about whatever that movie is going to be. I'm truly excited. It'll be fun. Uh, And uh, for people that want to check out our previous episode from last week, it's a patron-exclusive episode on Asteroid City. So that is over on the Beyond the Screenplay Patreon, waiting for you guys. And the summer-long battle between Barbie and Oppenheimer (sighs) reaches on. (laughs) Currently, Barbie is in the lead. So if you, listener, have something to say about that, whether you want Barbie to secure the victory or you want more atom bombs in your life, head over to the Beyond Screenplay Patreon where you can make your voice heard in the Barbie versus Oppenheimer vote. Okay, so we're moving forward in the Mission Impossible franchise, skipping over... Two. We don't need to talk about two. We're going straight into three and four. And there are some... Yeah, why did they call the second movie Mission Impossible 3? It's weird. It's weird. So these two movies are interesting. So up through this point, this this part of the franchise, one through four, different director, every movie. And then from here on out, it's Chris McCory. And watching this franchise kind of find itself uh, and try on different things is really interesting. And I think three and four are very interesting entries in that because they're both very different from one. They're different from each other, but they are sort of starting to circle around a thing. Uh, I feel like there's sort of a tension also happening between these as far as like, are we a heist franchise or are we an action franchise and how much we're doing each of one at any given time and then there's also the ethan hunt character transformation of is this the same ethan hunt from the original mission impossible they say it is uh but when i was watching mission impossible 3 i was like i do not believe that this feels like a very different (laughs) 
character. So there's a lot to dive into with these two movies. And so I'm kind of just curious to hear from you guys. Overall, what do you feel about these two entries in the franchise? Trisha, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I had a really interesting experience rewatching them this time because I've I've seen all the movies in this franchise a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Um, and generally speaking, I really like all of them. And I haven't really put myself through the exercise of what ones do I think are the best and why and having to kind of defend each one individually or like pull them apart. So um, this is the first time that I've really like put my analytical glasses on and been like, all right, let's really, really um, get into this. And three and four are so different from each other that it's almost hard to compare the two. And I know you said a minute ago that we're not going to talk about Mission Impossible 2, but Mission Impossible 3 was put in the position, J.J. Abrams was put in the position of inheriting a franchise where that was a part of it. Um, Mm -hmm. And he had to contend with the very different tone and characters and overall approach to what John Woo did with Mission Impossible 2. And so he was coming in trying to, you know, course correct, if you will, or at least reimagine what this could be. Mission Impossible 2 came out in the year 2000. Um, Mission Impossible 3 came out in 2006. One very important thing happened in between those two, and that was The Born Identity came out in 2002. And uh, it should be worth noting, Casino Royale also came out in 2006. It came out after Mission Impossible 3. It came out in November, and Mission Impossible 3 was a summer movie. So, but the the Bourne franchise, not just the Bourne Identity, which was in 2002, but the Bourne Supremacy came out in 2004. The Bourne franchise had, like, stepped in and, like, interjected itself very confidently into the action landscape. And you can kind of see that, that it's influence here, um, especially as the series goes on, but especially in Mission Possible 3 and in Mission Possible 4. Um, and for the record, a very important thing happened between these two films also, which was the writer's strike. So you have 2006, Mission Impossible 3. You have a writer's strike and sort of a disruption in the industry, a huge economic recession as well. Um, and then 2011 is when you have uh, Ghost Protocol. So the landscape is always shifting around this franchise. It's not like these movies are being created in a vacuum and the people who are making them are responding to what's sort of happening in the industry as well as, you know, outside of it in culture. And that's why I think these two movies, you know, they're separated by five years, but they're separated by like a lot of just other stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just want to say up, front that we're going to be comparing them and that that's not necessarily like fair that there's like contextualizing that should probably happen anytime you like sit down and try to compare movies from wildly different times uh and philosophies if you will of filmmaking and i also want to say that to um i'm gonna be a little bit of an apologist for mission impossible 2 uh here which is just that you know it was the year 2000 (laughs) 
It was a different world. <laughs> you could have Limp Bizkit do your theme song. And like, it's, it's, oh, yeah. 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 Wow. There was a lot that, that was not possible after that exact moment in time. And so then we stepped into Mission Impossible 3. But I love J.J. Abrams. I love Mission Impossible 3. Um, and I love Mission Impossible 4 in a different way. I think overall, the thing about both of these films, I think, though, that like you come away with is some really dazzling, like, showstopper set pieces and plots that are, uh, uh, and pretty <laughs> convoluted. Indeed. Um, in both cases, which is interesting. I wonder if that's, you know, we talked about that with the first Mission Impossible. Like, are these just set piece movies? So um, I do want to get into all of that. I want to get into Ethan Hunt. But overall, I have thumbs up but very different qualifiers for both of these movies. And I'm, I'm not objecting to tackling them in the same episode. I'm just saying <laughs> it's probably not fair to the people who made them or to the franchise generally to just uh, do a, like a head to head, which it feels like this is like maybe shaping up to be. So just want to get that out of the way. I don't think it needs to be a head. That's how, I, for me, how I'm yeah. approaching great. Okay, it. great. Yeah. I don't, I don't <laughs> think trying to solve which is better is a, a, a worthwhile task. And right. just interesting to compare these things. And tastes are a huge part of it. I do want yes. to say that. Yeah. For the whole franchise. And I think Absolutely. that's why it's so fun to look at this franchise kind of as we were saying in the previous episode, there's, it has kind of every flavor of ice cream in there for you. So there's like something mm. in it for everyone at different times. And I think that's part of what's fun. It's like identifying at what points are we tasting what flavors and to what extent do we like those flavors mm -hmm. of Mission Impossible? I don't know what kind <laughs> of ice cream. Anyway, Brian, what are your thoughts on these? Um, yeah, I, you know, it's, it's funny. I was remembering, I, f I feel like I can remember sitting in a theater for some other movie and then seeing the trailer for Mission Impossible 3. And I had pretty much written off the franchise at this point. And I just went, what is this? And if I remember correctly, the trailer was just the, you know, I'm going to count to 10, you know, and just like <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman and Tom Cruise just acting their asses off at each other and just this complete like crazy urgency. And I was like, what is going on? Like, this is a Mission Impossible movie. So that definitely got me interested, like reinterested in the series, as I think this movie did for a lot of people, you know, because Trisha, you were talking about uh, Casino Royale. It's like this was also the reboot era yep. where we had Batman Begins and Superman Returns and J.J. Star Trek a few years later. And this feels like a soft reboot of, of the series. Um, and yeah, as you said, JJ had to step in and direct the third movie in a franchise where the first two were wildly different and he did it well, uh, this time. Um, and, uh, but like, yeah, then I saw the movie and I was just like this, uh, you know, this is great. Like I really enjoy this. Um, and just, there's it's so much more, you know, character driven, I think than, than the first two movies were, um, and and it's not to say that they weren't in their own ways, but but that you know obviously like wife like all right like, like uh, suddenly the stakes are completely different than they were before right? movie wife um, and, Mission Impossible uh, colon wife yeah <laughs> that should be the name uh, of this movie tr I'm truly he's married this time. Uh, <laughs> In Dead Reckoning Part 2, he's got, like, a baby on, like, a baby Bjorn <laughs> the entire yeah. movie. I mean, Bond did it. Yeah, where else are you going to go? Yeah. So then, so yeah, I, I really enjoyed this movie. And then, weirdly, uh, when 
uh, Ghost Protocol was coming out. I was in India for a friend's wedding and booked myself a 24 hour layover in Dubai on the way back. Um, and, uh, it was new year's morning. Uh, so there's no, it was like six in the morning. Nobody it was one guy sweeping up outside, like, and nobody was in the, anywhere. Um, unfortunately I wasn't feeling too great from some of the, I think the ice that I had, uh, no, no, unfortunately some of the ice, uh, that I had in my drink, uh, in India. So I was, I wasn't, you know, wasn't feeling too great. So I just went to the Dubai mall which is the largest mall in the world. And I was looking at the biggest piece of acrylic in the world where there's a fish tank, which is across from the biggest candy store in the world. And it's right next to the Burj Khalifa. And I was like, well, what am I going to do to kill some time? I'm going to go see Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. So I went and saw. You saw it in Dubai? The, uh, what? In Dubai. <laughs> yeah, in the shadow Dubai. of the Burj Khalifa? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Whoa. And then I went up. Was there a sandstorm? Uh, there was not a sandstorm, fortunately. Uh, but yeah, so, and then I just, for whatever reason, I just loved Ghost Protocol. I was like, I really like this movie. And then I bought the Blu-ray when it came out. And I think I watched it like four times in the first year or maybe year and a half that I had it, that it came out. And rewatching, rewatching it, I'm like, I really love a lot about this movie and, there, and there's stuff we'll get into. You know, it, it gets a little too cartoony, unfortunately, at, at times and a little too over the top. But I really like the kind of the general style and the feel of, of Ghost Protocol um, quite a bit. Uh, so, yeah, I, I really feel like the, the common, like the one two punch of these movies were, were what made me go like, yep, I'm, I'm all in. Like, I, I am now a, a Mission Impossible fan. Um, so, yeah, I'm excited to get into it. Yeah, cool. All right, Alex, what about you? Yeah, very similar experience to both Trisha and Brian as far as uh, Mission Possible 3 being this kind of exciting, refreshing reboot of the franchise where, you know, you you were feeling emotional character stakes in a way that I, I wasn't expecting from this franchise. You know, you almost get to like a Spielberg style emotional family story uh which is the jj abrams effect you know he's kind of like little spielberg in a lot of ways um and and i think that was that was really uh enthralling in the theater to, to be on the edge of my seat with these incredibly intense character stakes at the heart of the story not just cool heist stakes um but i will say watching the movies back to back i just so prefer brad bird's style and what he brought directorially to this franchise, because you just feel that like Incredibles animation, just kind of like pitch perfect uh, way a sequence moves and the, the edit and the way shots are framed and the way, sh you know, the camera moves. I so prefer it to the Bourne J.J. Abrams, like I'm going to take the camera operator and like literally shake the camera like for him to make sure it's super shaky. I just I just really can't stand action shot that way. And a lot of Mission Impossible 3, unfortunately, has that, you know, Star Trek 2009 had it just that J.J. Abrams kind of like shaky intensity. It's all so intense because it's so shaky. Transitioning from that to the Brad Bird style, which I think kind of continues into the McQuarrie style, I really love. And so I think I think Ghost Protocol is where the franchise kind of found its look. And I, I really appreciate his look and style from that point on. And even the like character of Ethan Hunt feels like he's kind of settled into this is what he is now. Tom Cruise is kind of at a certain age where it's like he's no longer kind of young, cocky Tom Cruise. He's now more like mature. I know my stuff, Tom Cruise. And I, I just kind of like the vibe moving forward from Ghost Protocol. So I think it's, you know, I, I often say Fallout's my favorite of the movies just because I 
love what a ridiculous blast that movie is. But Ghost Protocol, I think, is now in contention because I really, really enjoyed revisiting it. And it does just feel so solid. And it has both elements we're talking about. You know, Michael mentioned the heist element in tension with the action element. I think we got great action scenes, but also really great heist scenes in this movie. Um, so I'm, I'm really a Ghost Protocol fan like Brian right now. We'll Thanks. see. We'll see how that holds up as we move forward. Yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't it be nice to have a curated selection of unique films from around the world, hand-selected by expert curators who are passionate about elevating great cinema? Why, yes. Yes, it would. And yes, it is. It's called MUBI. MUBI is a streaming service where each and every film is hand-selected. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there's always something new to discover. And here to tell us about one such film you might discover is our very own Trisha Rand. Trisha? Yes. Well, since you mentioned iconic directors, I recently checked out, they have a series right now on Todd Haynes where they have three of his films. I don't know if they're his most famous. Are they his masterpieces? I couldn't tell you because it was a big hole in my filmography. But I decided to start watching up and I started with Velvet Goldmine from 1998, which has Christian Bale and Hugh McGregor. It's got a stacked cast. It's got Tony Collette as well. Oh, Jonathan Reese Myers. Oh my God. Also Eddie Izzard. Okay. The whole thing is about like 70s glam rock and it's sort of pseudo documentary look at a fictionalized version of Bowie and a fictionalized version played by Ewan McGregor of like Lou Reed and Iggy Pop and like their tumultuous mm. relationship and collaboration. It's exactly the kind of thing that Brian would love. Um, and I also <laughs> really enjoyed it. It's like got a lot going on. It's out of time storytelling kind of thing. Christian Bale plays a journalist who's like going back and interviewing people that were there and involved, but he had also been involved in it when he was like a teenager. So it's like takes place in many different times and spans decades of these singers' relationships with each other. And there's sort of a big mystery surrounding the Jonathan Reese Myers character. So just really recommend it. And I'm definitely gonna check out the other couple of films they have on there by Todd Haynes because this one was quite a ride. Very interesting. Yeah, that sounds that sounds intriguing. Well, listener, you can go check it out because with a 30-day free trial, you can experience Movie's library of films for yourself. And by signing up, you're also helping support Beyond the Screenplay and helping us to continue to make new episodes. So why not try Movie for free today? Just head to movie.com slash beyond the screenplay to start your free trial and discover a whole world of great cinema. That's M-U-B-I.com slash beyond the screenplay. Thank you to Movie for sponsoring Beyond the Screenplay. Yeah, and so I think the style is one of the first things when I think of these two movies that jumps out at me as being so different and such contrast there. And like you're saying, Alex, Ghost Protocol feels a little more refined and sophisticated with some of its like camera work and how scenes are put together. I do remember being a little disappointed, maybe because I was so hyped about Brad Bird, he did Incredibles. Now he's doing a live action. Like, this is going to be amazing. Being a little underwhelmed. And I don't know if that was just an expectations thing, but overall really liking the look of that film, except for the third act where suddenly things look not good. We'll talk about the third act. Yeah. Um, yeah. But similarly, I think, you know, when Mission Impossible 3 came out, it felt like, 
like a breath of fresh air in the action world also like i hadn't seen action like that and i feel like both of like both of the trailers brian you mentioned the mission impossible three trailer but both of the trailers for three and ghost protocol were like really really good we're like in three, you have that shot where Tom Cruise is on the bridge and he's like running away from the car and then the right. missile comes and explodes mm-hmm. him laterally yeah. for some reason into the yeah. thing. And it's like, <laughs> but it's all one shot and it's like shaky and the camera's falling, but like it's actually a visual effects shot where they like stitch things together and it's a fake camera move. But that was kind of the first time anyone had done that on the big screen. So like there was really cool action happening in that. And then... The trailer for Ghost Protocol was super cool. There's like that Eminem song and just like there's a shot of Josh Holloway where he's like falling and turning and shooting. Yeah. And I was just like, how did you do that? That's the coolest thing <laughs> I've ever seen. Uh, College Michael is very excited about these movies. So we have Mission Impossible 3, which kind of for me getting back to this, you know, are we an action franchise? Or are we a heist spy franchise? Three is like action. We are action. We and are action. there's a little bit of spy stuff, but it's in service of the action. Uh, the, there's a very, the, the cold open is really cool, right? You talked about that, Brian, with Philip and Tom and like their stakes. It totally feels different than the rest of them. Uh, but then that first heist, if we can call it that heist, <laughs> where Ethan has to rescue Gary Russell. He has to save Ferris. <laughs> right. No. He does. Agent Ferris. That's where that band got its name. Don't look it up. <laughs> uh, it's just like a million miles away from like the heist in the first Mission Impossible, sure. right? Where it's like, we got to get in and quiet in and out. And no one knows that we're there. And this one's like, we brought machine turrets and we got <laughs> right. remote explosives that we're we stole fly from a helicopter Force Awakens. up into a wind field. Like- right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we're going to be as loud as possible. Uh, and so it does announce itself as like a different take on it. And again, to your point, Trisha kind of continuing John Woo and with the action that was injected in the franchise there. And so it's interesting that there are still heists and maybe my like second favorite heist in the franchise is in three where they go to the Vatican. And mm-hmm. a lot of that is just watching Philip Seymour Hoffman playing Tom Cruise yeah. playing Tom Cruise Philip playing Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, it's just like 10 out of 10, like nothing, there's there's nothing better. Um, but also to your point, Alex, then in four, it feels like there's a bit more of this even uh, like two-hander in terms of heist and action where like the Burj Khalifa, there is a lot of heisting happening, but in order to pull off the heist, we have to have this big crazy spectacle where Tom mm-hmm. Cruise is going to, Climb outside on the Burj Khalifa, which that movie also introduces that aspect of this franchise. Yep. But then it goes into, well, now we're impersonating people and there's actually a very convoluted, we're tricking people and it doesn't totally make a whole lot of sense. Doesn't make any sense. If they did not do that heist, it would have the same result. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I've thought about it and thought about it this time. And if they had impersonated no one, it would have the same result at the end of that heist. They could have just followed that guy. The papers have a tracker on it. That's that's the whole thing. The paper the paper it's with it. paper it's clip okay. has has a tracker. The paper in it. clip is a tracker. That is the yeah. only reason that they needed to do any of the heist, which means they did not need to do any of the heist. You right. could have put a track. Just slip it into his pocket in the elevator, guys. Like you don't need to impersonate. I'm sorry. No, that's an important call out. Yeah. <laughs> um, but and then it goes into an action sequence 
to end that. So like that whole the the whole second act basically of Ghost Protocol kind of just like ticks all the boxes of what this franchise can do and does do. Mm -hmm. So I think that is one of the interesting things looking at these two films is trying to they are trying to figure out the balance of action and heisty spyness uh, and watching that happen and comparing those is just really interesting. Also, Ghost Protocol did the IMAX thing and that you know, it was after Dark Knight. And I think it, it, I'm glad this is still happening with, you know, new movies coming out like Dune and just directors using those IMAX cameras like to their fullest, you know, uh, potential. Like what's the what's better to film in IMAX than this incredibly harrowing climb outside the tallest building in the world. Mm -hmm. Tom Cruise actually doing it, you know, with support wires, but actually hanging on the side of this incredibly tall building. It's just, it's just great that this, I, I, I love that this franchise began to make that a staple of its films, which is mm -hmm. we're going to have Tom Cruise actually do something insane and shoot it with the best possible cameras for your entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very happy that, that that the franchise pivoted to that as being one of the staples alongside heists and great action sequences. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, something you guys were talking about, um, and maybe we can get into just sort of the character of Ethan Hunt a bit, because this is something I brought up in the in the first episode of just like, who is this? And like, do we actually know the answer to that after six movies? And uh, Trisha, you had mentioned that he really cares about people and wants to protect them maybe more than a Jason Bourne or a James Bond. Um, and I thought about that and I was thinking about that while watching these movies and, you know, obviously mission possible one, it's like <laughs> that movie is sort of nihilistic in, in its, <laughs> in how it deals with the characters. Right. But of course, Ethan cares so much about them. So the oper whole operation was a mole hunt, like that's the that's the worst pot like the worst possible thing that could happen to him is that his team dies and then the worst possible thing you could hear is that it was for no good reason right and that is what sets him off on his whole journey um and then even in two like there's there's this sort of i think crisis moment where where tendoy newton's character is basically like I'm going to die because I've got the virus and like I'm fine with that and I'm I'm kind of I'm I've result and Ethan is like no way and then he goes does what he can to save her three he is obviously going to go get ferris like billy crudup says here's who's in danger and hopefully that's enough to get you back and of course he's like i i gotta go to houston for work right you know um and then and then of course his wife like that's no question and then ghost protocol opens with the big prison escape and then he has to go back and get bogdan <laughs> are you not sergey um and um and then even like the way that he cares about like Jeremy Renner, like about Brant, you know, where, where he is like, I want to give the people on my team peace and I want to make them feel good. And I think that's like a general action hero thing. Like your action hero is going to save people. Right. But I do think, you know, to Trisha's point, like it is something that feels like it really is carrying, carrying throughout these movies of him just being like, I, the thing I care, yes, I'm a spy and I've got to do this. I'm going to do that. The thing I care about the most is, is protecting and, and sort of, caring about the people around me yeah and i actually think that what you're bringing up here brian drives at the sort of divided heart of the action versus the heistiness of these movies which is like i i touched on it in the last episode about mission impossible the first one 
And the thing about a heist is that it's not supposed to hurt anybody, right? Like it's supposed to be about secrecy. When, um, you know, Ethan grabs Jean Renault's Krieger's wrist while he's holding the knife, what he says is zero body count. That's the line. And that is at the heart of what IMF is about. It is about a zero body count. We are here to do what we need to do, but we're not gonna hurt anybody because we're the good guys, because good guys don't hurt anybody. Now, that's what you can pull off when you're pulling off a surgical heist. Um, when you are doing action and stuff's exploding, bullets are flying around mm. and car chases, motorcycles, helicopters, all of it, there's casualties, right? People die. And so when the series becomes more in like strays more into, we are an action franchise, people die. And, you know, Ethan's whole thing is supposed to be that he cares about that fact. That fact is deeply meaningful to him. The crazy part is for all of Mission Impossible 2's sort of problems, they do understand that about the character to the very core of that film. Like, there's the heist, the centerpiece heist in Mission Impossible 2 is predicated on the idea that Doug Ray Scott, the bad guy in that movie, whose name I'm not going to remember, I'm sorry, but like... Because Doug Ray Scott's all you need to say. Because Doug Ray Scott. <laughs> what, what a great name. Um, but he is, he anticipates what IMF is going to do and what Ethan is going to do because he knows that IMF is not going to risk anybody's life unnecessarily. So that whole centerpiece heist is like, he's going to dive in through this fan down through this like crazy atrium to get to this like virus that's over here. He could just take out two guards, but there's no way he's going to do that because of who he is. And so the whole sort of like ensnarement piece of that heist is based on the character of Ethan Hunt caring about human life. And we kind of see this, there's more thematic conversation about it in the Macquarie's in five and six, and, and we'll get into those. Um, but I do think that, that you get that the difference in the way that these movies are approached um, is about how central that is to the character. Is that a central tenet of who he is or is it tertiary? Is it something he can let go of? Um, and so, you know, as you point out in Mission Impossible 3, the heist at the Vatican is very much a heist. We're not going to harm anybody. We're going to grab people if we can and get out. And it's it's not designed to hurt anyone. In fact, I don't think anyone gets hurt in the Vatican heist. Yeah. Um, and the Ethan Hunt character is really upset when there's loss of life of someone that he cares about in that film. Now, unfortunately, there are other sequences in Mission Impossible 3 where there are casualties. Mm -hmm. Machine guns flying everywhere. <laughs> right. <laughs> and other scenes as well, right, where, like, even in the final sequences, I don't know if it's actually clear, but when he, like, swings onto that building um, in Shanghai and he takes right. out those two guards, it's not mm -hmm. clear if he's shooting them with, like, a dart or right. bullets. But he shoots those two guards, right? Um, and then there's like a crazy chase scene through the streets and all of this stuff. And they're like bullets flying around between the cars and then, you know, whatever. So there's a lot less carefulness to an action sequence um, than there is to a heist sequence. And I think, you know, taste and preference aside, I feel like it's in sort of 
conversation throughout the franchise about what sets Ethan Hunt apart from all these other action heroes we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting about Mission Impossible 3 and especially the, the sequence you're talking about once Julia is captured and, you know, the, the clock is ticking. There's, you know, mm-hmm. four hours until she's going to be shot. It's a different setup. You know, a heist is usually maybe we have a ticking clock in general to finish this heist by tomorrow. But this is going to be a carefully planned, carefully executed precision right. thing. Mission Impossible 3, the whole second half of the movie is just kind of Tom Cruise like racing against time, desperate, emotional, like frantic. And so it's it is setting up a very different type of Mission Impossible sequence. It's it's really just like a desperate husband who has to save his wife and there's no time. And so yeah, in that situation, you don't have time to plan the most perfect heist of those buildings in Shanghai. You just swing over and shoot some guys and jump out and barely escape on the parachute. Um and and I think it's Thinking ahead to the movies to come, I think, yeah, Ethan Hunt often finds himself more and more in these just like desperate, insane chase kind of sequences uh, more often than these precision, carefully constructed sequences. And yeah, I think I think what I like about Fallout uh, as just an action movie fan is just how propulsive it is but i think michael and i have a disagreements about fallout because i think you do lose something in that propulsion you know you if you're always frantic if you're always just propelled forward to the next scene you, you never can stop and make a plan that that is complicated and fun and precision mm-hmm. yeah and i think the burj khalifa sequence actually is a really good marriage of all of the things that right. we like right because mm-hmm. Even in the initial Mission Impossible with the heist, the Langley heist, there is improvisation, right? So it's not like everything goes according to plan all the time. You know, a precision heist goes off without a hitch. It's that there is planning and then we do have to improvise. But the law that dictates the way that we improvise is this like sort of ethic, right, about human life and and, and whatnot. Um, And the Burj Khalifa heist is a really, really good example of that. Where, you know, I was criticizing, and I do think this is valid, the logic of what they do. But the reason why they do what they do in that se- sequence is because literally everything goes wrong. And so, you know, they're setting up this whole thing where they're going to impersonate two different people and they're going to be on two different floors of the hotel. And at first, that seems like the logical plan. But then, all these things go wrong and it's sort of a cascade of problems. And then they kind of can't back out of what they were planning to do. But, but the way by which they improvise is still generally speaking again, within this ethic of like preserve life, right? The whole question for Jane's character in uh, that sequence is, is she going to kill as they do the assassin? Um, because that's what she wants to do. And again, there's a thematic question about like, do you, value her life, take personal revenge because she took away someone that you love? Or do you follow this code that we as an organization have, supposedly? There's a way to improvise. When the series is at its best, we're seeing the characters improvise, but staying true to this sort of like, it doesn't feel messy necessarily, or it still feels like it's guided by this idea rather than just flailing around looking for like an exit or a quick fix. 
Yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, and so I think what's also interesting, looking at that Burj Khalifa sequence and and Ghost Protocol in general, because I think the other thing it introduces, besides just another evolution of Ethan Hunt, is uh, like a little bit of continuity. Like watching it this time, it felt like they were trying to maybe set up and here's the team like from now on that like mm-hmm. kind of the arc is happening into this group of people that is like the perfect team and they learn to like work together is kind of what they say out loud at different right. points but i very much don't feel that throughout the movie like all like all the it's this weird thing for me where it feels like ghost protocol feels like it's very character centric and very about the arcs of all these characters but i don't feel any of them basically uh and so it's just really interesting and i think it's taken me this many times to even track the beats and understand brant's like kind of complicated backstory and that like he's an analyst and I, like I, I don't know the the way it's all presented it feels like there's a lot of much ado made about things that don't need that much and so I think that's another interesting aspect of this franchise is when is it about Ethan's team and his like responsibility to the team? And when is it about Ethan kind of going rogue and doing his own thing? And it over the franchise, I think it becomes more and more about the team, even though the team keeps shifting, they start to kind of solidify a little bit, like all the ghost protocol people, Brandt and Simon Pegg come back Paula Patton doesn't get two for some reason, but at least we get two pieces of continuity and Luther's there at the end and then Luther can kind of come back. Yeah. Up until that point, Luther, I believe, is the only person. Simon Pegg gets to go from three to four. So, yeah, I don't know. It's just interesting. Whereas in the first one, you know, it opens with Ethan losing his whole team and it's him and a femme fatale that maybe he can't trust. And they kind of pick up a team that, that can't be trusted and it's more about I don't know. It's it's less about that. We're building a team to go on a fun adventure together. And by the end of four, it feels like it's more almost starting to get into like Avengers-y territory yeah. of like Getting beers after the battle. Right. Like yeah. we're going to talk about yeah. it. And like, yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd be curious to know what, what some of the behind the scenes development was of ghost protocol, because I know Simon Pegg talked about the early scripts, the Brant's story about Jules, happened like jules see ya you know and and of course now that we're two more movies in that just feels like i'm so glad (laughs) that's not the case right um but then he you know simon pegg referred to what he called the alien three problem uh which is aliens is like all about ripley saving newt and that's the entire point of this movie right and then alien three is like whoops i guess something happened in space and it's just you on this colony and it's like wait what like why do we watch an entire movie about this right um 
and I, and I and I do love the the sort of this bookend, not bookend, but the the this epilogue with Jules, where it's just like he's kind of keeping an eye on her, you know, and she sees him, and I'm just like, oh, I love that so much, um, and and I'm glad that we, you know, we 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 see her again, as we'll get into later, um, but there there's definitely an attempt to I want to save a lot of this for lessons, but there's definitely an attempt to give us these characters who have their own private lives you know there's this one little micro scene between uh maggie q and and uh john reese myers i love you that know. little part yeah where she's like it's a prayer was it and teach me the prayer you know and it's just like ooh, these characters these are people these are humans you know um and then of course you know paula Patton has her whole beef um with with leia sadu and uh and brant has his whole thing and i'm just like okay this is this i at least i appreciate a movie that is trying to tell me who its characters are but i also wonder as you were saying michael if it was like a plan of like we'll introduce these guys and we'll get in we'll really come back to them later you know it's like oh we didn't really get that necessarily as i think the macquarie's are starting to develop these ongoing characters a little bit you know avenger style as you were saying but um but yeah i I think it's i just think it's interesting um and real quick before we get out before we get too far away from it i want to mention the the ghost protocol uh, burj khalifa heist not the impersonating each other part but the server room part and and you guys were touching on it a little but i was thinking this this is this such a cool blend of what we talked about with the heist in the first movie of make really clear stakes you know really like really clear goals and then really clear stakes of what could happen and then make everything worse like everything you know nothing's gonna work that's it's doing a lot of that work but then on the other side it's tom cruise is gonna do a crazy stunt you know and Mm -hmm. i think like in in the other movies it's like oh he's he's you know he's climbing onto a plane but that doesn't feel like it's necessarily a part of this big you know sort of elegant heist you know and what i love about the server room it's we have to go in from the outside hey this glove's not working hey there's a sandstorm you know and then it's the what what i said about it he makes it but just barely like both three and, and and ghost protocol have these moments of like you're selling you're selling to me that he did this crazy thing because he almost didn't you know and that's exactly what the first movie does um and i like that this is really integrating the the stunt into Mm. the heist in in a cool way not separate the one thing that it doesn't do that's my kind of only knock against it is that i think in the original mission impossible film you're there to steal the knock list and that's what the whole movie is about. Like the plot has been like, right. it's about the list. The list can't get in the open. Are right, we figured out how we're going to list? Yeah. And this yeah. is sort of like you show up and it's like, oh, sorry. My computer says I need to get into the server <laughs> yeah. now. Uh, we've invented a reason for you to have to go in from the outside. And I feel like the movies get more and more like that, where it's like MacGuffin thing number two means you're going to have to do something crazy, Ethan. And it's fun and it still works, but it it does feel slightly less of a believable reality and like it kind of slips more toward the the stunt crazy show uh, as things go on for me definitely yeah well and circling back to the kind of supporting cast of characters and i think yeah both of these movies attempting to flesh them out and and yeah make more of this team feel yeah they you kind of mentioned, Michael, it's like, are they succeeding at this? There's definitely the markers of this is what you do when like a character has a regret and you know they're dealing with that and they have an arc about the regret. But yeah, why don't we always like feel it in, in these two movies? In Mission Possible 3, 
I agree. It's a nice little scene with Maggie Q in the car, but it's like, it's the only scene, you know, it's, it's like, we have one scene where it's like, I'm a human. I have a prayer from childhood. Like, see, I'm a character. But then besides that, I don't know what she feels really about anything. And it's late. And it's instead of seeing him do the heist that we just spent a bunch of time planning, we're seeing these two people decide to have a character moment. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. That was a fun twist to me. (laughs) He's like, just suddenly like, we gotta go. We gotta go. (laughs) Yeah. It was was a fun, surprising thing, but it also felt like it just felt like a thing where it's like, oh, I guess we should have a character moment with these characters. So here it is like just in a car. And I think with, um, you know, Jane's character, Paul Patton's character, Jane in, in ghost protocol, you know, there is an interesting thing set up there of like, she kind of wants revenge. She feels, you know, enraged about the loss of this person she cared about. Um, but there's also this feeling, it's almost like they're trying to set her and Ethan Hunt, Hunt up as kind of like adversarial from the beginning. Uh, you know, during the heist, when they're breaking him out of the prison, there's this weird tension between them of of like, who are you? Like, mm. is it your fault the, the list is gone? Like, Ethan Hunt, who usually is kind of I don't know. He, he's professional and like generous to people is weirdly not generous towards her. And it, it felt a little bit like a put on like we got to have some like tension in the team so that they can be like BFFs by the end. And I think that's where, yeah, there's a little bit of a, a straining feeling of like this movie's got to have the formation of a team, but they can't all be good at the beginning. So here's some tension for kind of no reason. And it, it feels like he's also maybe even going on an arc of like, Ugh, these are the people that I'm paired up with right. to like, okay, you guys are my team. Like this time I was detecting little bits of that where like, wait, Benji, you're in the field and you know, everybody kind of screws up in the Burj Khalifa heist and he kind of leaves everybody behind. I feel like there's even a, a line, I don't know, but there was, it was just interesting that they were trying to do this arc of like, these people aren't good enough to be my team to like, <laughs> now they are, I guess. Yeah, but but like Benji was in the last movie and like helped him. I don't know. It just mm. yeah. <laughs> I wonder if there used to be more textually of that arc and Chris McQuarrie came and softened it because they realized how unlikable it makes Ethan. Mm. I don't know. There there's that. I know that so you know, it's a pretty common story now that Chris McQuarrie did a bunch of rewriting on Ghost Protocol. Um that was uncredited. And he said that it was basically about, you know, trying to sort of neaten the mystery or like the backs backstory at the heart of it. So I, I think it has to do, I wasn't able to like find it in so many words, but having to do with, I assume what happened to Jules, right. Mm -hmm. Um, and Brant's backs whole pretty convoluted backstory, which they try to make it like a huge mystery. Like why is Ethan in prison how did he get to prison? Does he deserve to be in prison? Is he a bad guy? Did he do something bad? If he did, what was it? What could possibly have prompted? Blah, 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 blah. And so I'm glad that that's at least an understandable story now, even if it's not necessarily like an on-screen compelling conflict that we see play out. Um, but yeah, just going back to like what makes the team a team um, and why do we care about them? I think for all of the nakedness of J.J. Abrams' emotional manipulation in <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Mission Impossible 3. Very naked. <laughs> 
it kind of <laughs> works though. Like, mm-hmm. like JJ can do it. Like he, he knows how to do, do it. it. Yeah. Oh, for sure he can. And it is pure manipulation. It's just yeah. Tom Cruise and Philip Seymour Hoffman like very acting at each other. <laughs> and but it it gets you. Like it got you, Brian. It, it got me the first time I saw it. Like it's these heavyweights and they can really act and they're doing it. Um, and, you know, say what you want about Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. Uh, but, like, he's a character, right? Philip Seymour Hoffman being evil. That's, I don't know. Right. That's what I mean. I guess there's kind of a question mark there, but it's, like, kind of fine. You know? <laughs> no, exactly. Like, he's he is playing a character, and he doesn't necessarily feel one-dimensional, right? We He is. We don't know anything about him. He's pure evil in his own special way um, without really having dimensionality. Mm-hmm. But he's sort of formidable, and we remember him. And the same with, you know, some of the other, like, Jules and um, Jesse, who's there. Uh, sorry, <laughs> Michelle Paul. Monaghan's brother, but he's, like, yeah, really oh, yeah. just playing oh, yeah. Jesse Pinkman. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's just there doing that same character, being an idiot. But, like, he's Yo, there. Mr. Hunt. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, he can really do characterization. Lawrence Fishburne is there being, like, I guess... Like the bad guy, but not the bad guy. I'm Billy here Crudup's to make you actually think the I'm the guy. bad guy as hard as possible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but there's like, there is meat to these scenes. You can see the mm-hmm. actors again, like doing yeah. acting as hard as they can because there's acting to do, right? Mm-hmm. Even if you don't know who these characters are, there's enough on the page, like sort of philosophically and in the scenes that they can kind of work their way through them. They can act them um whereas a lot of these other things like unfortunately for ghost protocol there isn't much acting to do um and so you know again the emotional manipulation is just what it is but if you put this cast of characters in mission possible three they can do it and it will work on you it will work on a lot of people it worked on me um jj usually works on me like, I'm a sucker. I'm just a normal human person who, like, if you tell me that this is somebody's son or their wife or their whatever, I'm like, oh, my God. And it works on me. Um, and it might be cheap and it might just be whatever. But it's something you can kind of sink your teeth into. And actors especially can sink their teeth into. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there's, you know, there's a lot of movies that do the sort of flash forward opening. Right. And, and to varying degrees. Um, and because it's almost become uh, not quite a trope, but it's become kind of just like an obvious thing to do. Right. But this is to me, one of the most interesting because it, it raises this huge dramatic question of how did we get to here from what you're about to see, which is Ethan mm-hmm. has like a secret identity, you know, and he he's is at his engagement like, party. He's at engagement <laughs> party, right? And he like does the you know traffic stuff or whatever his mm-hmm. job is supposed to be. Um, and then it's like, but we just saw, um, you know, we just saw him holding a gun to Jules's head. Like, holy, like, how are we going to get to there? And then you know, you forget about it as you usually do with these flash forward sequences. But then the moment, the bridge sequence where where Davian gets away. Like I'd seen this movie a couple of times, but I'm just going like, oh no, he's gonna, <laughs> I'm just like, because in a normal, without that flash forward, it's like, ah, oh, he got away. That sucks. But instead it's like, oh no, he got away. Now I know what's going to happen next. And I'm so upset <laughs> that that's going to happen next. Um, 
And and man, I just want to. Can we talk about Philip Seymour Hoffman for a second? Like like first of all, this character where Davian is kind of this. Whether it's the character, or whether it's his performance, you know, between the Joker or Moriarty or Christoph Waltz, the actor, um, <laughs> like there's, you know, there's just these villains who are just like we're gonna we're gonna have so much fun and we're gonna like really chew up the scenery in these ways that are incredible, right? And Davian is just like miserable. Like, I don't have time yeah. for this. I, yeah. Do you have a wife or a girlfriend? I'm going to, I'm going to hurt her, you know, like <laughs> yeah. the, this, like no nonsense just matter. And he's not even enjoying, like even at the end, like the, the, the big finale, he's not enjoying any of it. He's just like, all right, going to have to kill you now. You know? And I just like, there's something so terrifying about somebody who's just like, look, this is what it is. Um, and, and yeah, like, and, and of course the very simple, your antagonist should be the opposite uh, your antagonist's goal should be the opposite of the protagonist's goal. And this very simply is, now that I know who you are, I am going to make take the things that you love and hurt them and kill them and destroy them, right? And uh, one of our patrons, Douglas Berry, asked us about MacGuffins and, well, like, the rabbit's foot. And this mm-hmm. this is a movie where even Ethan doesn't know what the rabbit's foot is at the end. Like, it's almost like purposefully making fun of MacGuffins because that's not what we care about. We care about this character and a person he loves and this bad guy who wants to kill them. Um, and I just, I just think it's all really, really cool. It's really cool antagonist design. And then, you know, just anytime you're like, what if we took this like Oscar, you know, where the actor and just made him the bad guy, see what he does with it. And you're like, you get that performance. And I, I, I love it. I feel like the like lines that stick in my head for forever is yeah. His, his like, I'm going to find her and then I'm gonna kill yeah. her right in front of you. Like the way he says that, I'm just like, Oh yeah. <laughs> like I hear that in my head sometimes randomly. Uh, and then him, <laughs> as Ethan in the bathroom and just the way he's it's like so yes. amazing it's, yes. and like why yeah. is it so good every frame when he's in like he's channeling Tom Cruise like the yeah, micro yeah. like I don't understand how he did it so well it's yeah it's just it's a completely unfair performance it's right just so so good to, real quick interjection there's you were talking about the VFX stuff I think that there's this where Tom Cruise is putting on the Philip Seymour Hoffman mask. Yeah, kind of the camera goes it. behind someone, like like whoever's is it Luther? Luther? I don't, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And you assume because you know sort of like cinema language, like oh, once it goes past him, it's going to be Philip Seymour Hoffman, and they're going to do like this quick cut. But it's not. It's or maybe it's Philip Seymour Hoffman putting on a Philip Seymour Hoffman mask or something. Because then by the end of that shot, it is definitely Philip Seymour Hoffman. I'm like, wow, you you put in the like that's cheating. You put in the <laughs> thing that tells me this is where we're going to do the cut, but then you don't. But then you don't cut, and then you actually change actors. I'm like, all right, you got me. I feel like this like yeah, this was a time where VFX was like finding new ways of doing things, and and that's right. exactly what it is. It's like it's it's the way you would have done it, but we can use VFX to like scramble your brain and do it in an unexpected way <laughs> right is, yeah really cool mentioned luther and i i do really love how his character kind of like plays a pretty significant role in ethan hunt's journey in mission impossible 3 like i think he we've talked about him as being kind of the heart of the franchise and i think mm-hmm. this this movie really solidifies that as he's worried about ethan and he's he's giving him the advice of like it does not end well when you care about people, when you have a wife and you're doing this job, like all the secrets, all the lies, it's not going to work out. And I, I really love all those scenes where they're they're doing their business, they're doing their heist prep, but 
during that prep, we get this kind of like, you know, bromance friendship between Ethan and Luther, where he, he really cares about Ethan and he's trying to guide him to not make a horrible mistake. And I, I think, you know, we, we lose Luther in, in uh, Ghost Protocol. I haven't seen Rogue Nation for a while. I don't know how prominent he is in that one, but I, I do. I, okay. He's yeah. Back, so, but he, he's no, back. He, yeah. he doesn't come back until later in the, in the movie. It's yeah. not, it's certainly not like the same bromance that you get like mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know in some of these other films yeah i wish i wish they would they would maybe we'll see what happens in the, in the next two but uh i i think there's something really kind of special about the ethan and luther relationship and i i think it's a thing the franchise should take advantage of as especially as it winds down and if, if we're going to see the last of ethan hunt soon I, I really hope that relationship gets its, its due in the final two movies yeah yeah the luther character really reminds me of a few different characters in the James Bond franchise, like Q is one, but then also Felix Leiter is another. Um, and different entries into the James Bond franchise have used those characters differently. But when you have somebody like that, that is able to speak into the friendship aspect of the character, it's, you know, a very classic, like ally, I see you and, not not there to cause conflict necessarily, but just to call out some of the like thematic or character things that the central protagonist is wrestling with. And so Luther has been used to that effect, I think, very well by some people in this franchise and at other times has been, I think, underutilized. So I love the use of Luther in Mission Impossible 3, as you're pointing out, Alex. He's like worried about Ethan and worried about Jules by extension. Basically, he just thinks it's going to end badly given their lifestyle. And then he pretty much disappears um, in Mission Impossible 4 uh, in Ghost Protocol in a lot of ways. We'll get back into how, like, he's, um, I don't know, how he's used later on in the series. Um, and how he, you know, speaks to theme and and uh, into the Ethan Hunt character. But I miss him when he's gone. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, it's and there's there's the function of the character that I'm highlighting. But there's also just like that humanizing aspect of having a person like that in the room yeah. or, you know, as the case usually is in a van sitting in front of some monitors nearby. Because you cast like Ving Rhames as your kind of computer nerd, which is just It's, it's amazing, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Chris McQuarrie understands the function of that character and the soul of the character a little bit better than either really J.J. or um, Brad Bird do here. Um, although, again, it's not like he's doing nothing in Mission Impossible 3, but mostly what he's doing in Mission Impossible 3 is highlighting the character conflict and that's necessary. Um, it is sort of missing that warmth aspect though. There's just, there's a lot of possibility for who mm. Luther is. Um, and I like to see it explored. Totally agree. Um, but th there is something that I was realizing, you know, as, as I mentioned, I don't know from a development aspect in Ghost Protocol, like why certain decisions were made to not bring certain characters back or not really use them or introduce new characters. Um, but there is something about Ghost Protocol 
taking both Jules and Luther away from you and sort of and sort of making you know and then taking IMF away right like like entirely and making Ethan feel like this you know they don't really do necessarily a whole lot with this in, with his character but making him feel like a lost soul and I just know for me the first couple times I watched the movie the the coda of this movie was so like moving to me to have him having a beer with his buddy who's making fun of the cheesy line he just said, you know, and I'm like, there's Luther. And then it's like, by the way, there's Jules. I'm like, there's Jules. And like, there's something, <laughs> I, whether or not, you know, the movie could have done it better. I don't know, but there was something kind of, kind of, uh, appropriate about taking these characters away for a movie, but then giving them back to you at the end. And it sort of makes it feel like there, there's a little bit of a catharsis there, or there was for me at least. Uh, but I agree with everything you're saying. And I want to put a pin in this and just revisit it again as we Definitely. get into the later entries. Um, Dan Hoy, one of our patrons asked a question specifically about the team aspect versus like Ethan as an individual um, and sort of what themes arise out of having Ethan surrounded by people that, he trusts that our friends and versus, you know, the things that he does by himself. And I do think it'll be interesting in the new movies to see who the team is, like what sort of things are being explored by who's around Ethan at any given moment. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It'll be very interesting and, and kind of, we didn't really touch too much on this, but the, the genre It'd be mm. interesting to talk about that with like five and six going into seven part one. Where do we feel like the genre kind of lands? Because I think three is very much we're an action movie with other stuff. And four is a bit more fun adventure action. But like, I think I'm thinking about this because of the addition of the Simon Pegg character as the new techie person. And he's mm -hmm. kind of hapless and like maybe shouldn't be in the field in number four. And like, it's just interesting. I feel like they make choices for the comedy of it and for the fun, like take your family, you'll laugh. It'll be great. That kind of also undercuts IMF. And I think that's, mm -hmm. that's kind of the mm -hmm. weird thing overall for me in four is that IMF feels uh, like lame if these are the <laughs> like Simon Pegg was able to pass like the exam and he's out in the field and they call out that he doesn't know what he's doing. And he, I don't know. It was just really interesting things that I feel like choices that were made for genre and entertainment purposes that maybe undercut the story world. But does that even matter moving forward? It's just a really interesting aspect that's, that's happening in the background here too. And all of it brings us full circle around to heist versus action, right? If mm -hmm. you are a heist, if you're pulling off a heist, you need a team. If you're doing action, you can do it alone. Yeah. Cool. Well, why don't we move into lessons and what lessons we're going to take away from Mission Impossible 3, Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol. I'm going to do a mini lesson up front that is just don't take away Josh Holloway. Don't give me Josh Holloway and then take him <laughs> yeah. away. This is a really good lesson. Like, Looking the, super cool, like right. jumping off a building like that. The jacket, yeah. so good. Like yeah. he's the, the coolest hat. part of that movie. And like he could have been like a cool like hum fatale and I don't know. Like there's so much you could have done with Josh Holloway. So that's the lesson. He's too handsome. Tom Cruise isn't going to let that stay in the competition. He's like I need to be surrounded by Simon Pegg like people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We love you, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
Um, Alex, what lessons are you going to take away from Mission Impossible 3 and Ghost Protocol? Yeah, comparing uh, the third acts of both these movies was interesting because as I think you mentioned earlier, Michael, the third act of Ghost Protocol feels a little rough and it's weird. Yeah, even um, from a technical perspective, like the the quality of like the film stock like or the camera. It differently like, or switch lenses. Like it looks yeah, totally different. Yeah. There's something about the way it's shot that feels worse than the rest of the movie but technical stuff aside i think there is a little bit of a problem you run to run into when your midpoint second act heist is so good and is so epic and is so amazing how do you top that in the third act and i think mission impossible 3 deals with that problem by having there be this incredible emotional stakes it's it's all about this desperate attempt to save his wife so even if the scene with Jules and the final confrontation with Philip Seymour Hoffman is just in a room where they kind of roll around and roll into the street, that is so much more engaging and intense than some of the antics that we get up to in Act 3 of Ghost Protocol. And and I think that just it just shows that if you're going to have a spectacular midpoint act two sequence you got to find a way for your act three sequence if not if it's not going to be more spectacular and more epic you got to have some emotional core some emotional dramatic question that we're dying to see answered and that's what we're in act three for and i think that's where ghost protocol does feel weak to me is act three is still just about the heist it's still about getting the briefcase and stopping the launch from happening and it's kind of just like a less awesome heist than the other heist <laughs> and and the you know and they, and it feels like some of the characters are kind of wasted during that heist it's like poor uh paul Patton's character just having to like seduce this like weird dude for the right. entire time like it, it's like and to get this to do this one thing just to get this one code out of him and then she's done basically with her portion of the heist it just feels like kind of a waste of characters and just not just not as good as the as the Burj Khalifa heist. So that's my lesson is if you're if you're gonna do your big set piece in the middle of the movie, make sure there's emotional stakes for the end that we really care about, because we don't need a big set piece in that case. We just want to know the answer to that dramatic question. Yeah. I think, yeah, paying attention to the third acts of all these films, I think is is a cool exercise. Cause I think Mission Impossible One, the third act is like the action. Like there, there isn't really as much action. Mm. And so they save the like action stuff for the finale to your flying motorcycles. Three, uh, like you're saying, there's this emotional thing. Four, it's kind of just, again, like a heist, but the only stakes are, are they going to stop them in time or not? And like meta wise, we know they're not going to nuke San Francisco. So like, it's just when is it going to happen? Five, I don't remember the third act of it, and I've seen it multiple times. But Fallout has an insane final act that Correct. I like. Mm. I lose my breath just thinking about it. So we'll we'll dive dive into those when we get into I'm that. I'm so excited so. for the Mercuries. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I I'm gonna go next because I, I'm, it's basically everything Alex just said and, and everything I've been talking about are the sort of like when when things are personal when they're emotional that's that's when i'm tuned into this franchise you know and i purposefully haven't watched um 
uh, Rogue Nation or Fallout again yet, which was very frustrating because I watched these two movies on the same night and I was like so pumped. I wanted to run around the block and it was all <laughs> I wanted to do the next day was watch five and six. Right. Um, but but yeah, I mean, you know, I, I mentioned it's something I want to track across these movies, uh, including Dead Reckoning was I mentioned in Mission Impossible one. I'm the most tuned in when it's like, he's like the whole thing was a mole hunt. Like I'm, I'm so, you know, like where he is upset and we're tracking and I feel for him and I want him to go do something. Um, at Mission Impossible 3, as Trisha, you pointed out, it's just, it's just cheating. It's like Mission Impossible Wife, like, you know. Um, and then, and then Ghost Protocol, being a movie that I love and have seen many times, I realized, like, I don't even remember what the third act of this movie is. I remember, you know, I've got to go save my friend Bogdan. And then, you know, Paula Patton with just her, like, her whole revenge thing and Brant with his whole grief thing and, or, or guilt thing um, and then and then Ethan like and then I guess there's an act three something Hawkeye flies which you can't even do in the Avengers movie um, but then but then it's like here's Luther here's his buddy and here's Jules and I'm like oh man I'm so I'm so excited and Michael you just confirmed this which is my gut memory is telling me Rogue Nation doesn't isn't too concerned with a lot of personal character, emotional stuff, but then Fallout is, and I'm I'm excited to kind of rewatch and see what they do, and 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 you know to what degrees, or maybe there are little side you know character things in Rogue Nation that are that are nice that I am going to go like ah that makes me more interested in this. Um, but I, you know, I was thinking about the John Wick movies where like John Wick one is like. Theon Greyjoy kills John Wick's puppy, who was given to him by his late wife. Again, just cheating, right? Yeah, he's just like well, late wife and puppy, right? Yeah, exactly. You're like, you're like, please go kill everyone. I support this. This is fine, right? And then by John Wick four, it's like it began with a forging of the great rings. I'm like, what is this like universe? Like, I don't know what anything is. I don't know why anybody's doing anything. And it's just like you got me with the first movie by making it so personal, and then you got sort of like. But for me, like bogged down in all of this lore and and this stuff that that feel that makes it feel different, you know. And it'll be there seem to be a whole lot of characters in Dead Reckoning, so so I'm I'm curious how that's going to go. But I'm I'm hoping based on Fallout, I'm hoping that that they do find a way to just find this like personal emotional core at the center of these movies and and really just invest me as a person who cares more about seeing characters care about something than I do about whatever the next big set piece is or whatever the rabbit's foot is or whatever. <laughs> right. What's the name of the IMF guy from the first movie? Kittridge. Kittridge. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's back mm -hmm. and yeah. Tom Cruise is like flexing his face muscles at him in the trailer. Like so. it feels like a clear callback to the, yeah. like that trailer. Some personal things. If they just yeah. play the trailer over and over for three hours, <laughs> I will be fine with that too. That's, I'm okay with that. In IMAX. Yeah. yeah. Trisha, what's your lesson? Yeah, um, just sort of what I was touching on earlier about like supporting cast and people who are important to the protagonist and what we sort of know about Ethan Hunt's uh, philosophy or like ethic um, that dictates his actions. And so I think, you know, someone asked us on the Patreon about like wife and children and family life and settling down. And is that um impossible in the context of a spy thriller and or does that like sort of negate the potential of a spy thriller hero and you know the the problem is obvious and 
all of Mission Impossible 3 is about tackling this exact problem, which is that if there's a woman the hero cares about, then unfortunately the bad guy can just go get that woman and then you will have the hero <laughs> up against the ropes. And uh, that woman. <laughs> I mean, and and to be fair, as someone who loves the James Bond movies and loves all of the Mission Impossible movies, that is a, a thing that happens again and again and again where there is a woman in peril and and then, you know, the, the good guy has to go save her. Um, and, and that's the only way to get to him because otherwise he would make the hard choice and let the person die. But he would mm. never do that if it's a woman he loves. Um, but I do want to say that overall the Mission Impossible movies do seem interested in sort of interrogating that idea. And instead of letting it be sort of an idle trope that just exists, there's curiosity about it. Um, the thing about action movies is that action heroes have to have skills. Someone else on the Patreon asked us about this exact thing, um, it, which is, you know, when you're assembling a team, how do you think about putting together like the skills um, and also the weaknesses of the people on the team? And uh, as the series goes on, different members of the team are uh, put to the test a little bit more and they're sort of, they sort of become uh, called into question as people Ethan cares about. So it's not just jewels that people can get to anymore. People can get to Benji, people can get to Luther, people can get to Alec Baldwin, whatever his character's <laughs> name is. Um, like, it sort of becomes more about this. The more people you let in, the more vulnerable you are, right? And supporting cast can do that in a variety of ways. It doesn't always have to be a romantic interest. And so in spite of Mission Impossible 3 being incredibly effective for that reason of putting the wife into peril, it also raises this question of here was a trainee that I worked with who had a lot of potential she was harmed. Um, I feel responsibility for that. Is she a woman? And it has to be necessarily gendered, apparently, in this context. Yes, I guess. Uh, but then, you know, sort of these themes become continued throughout the series. And Brandt becomes a person we're supposed to care about when he's in peril and all of this stuff. So looking into the core uh, of a trope, I guess, and sort of starting to mine it for the many facets of potential that it offers. Like there's a reason why a wife in peril is a trope. The reason is still compelling. Like we don't have to execute it in this trite way. Um, we can sort of start to get into what it actually means on a psychological character level. And I love anytime the series takes advantage of that or like dives into that. Um, and so, you know, there's not a ton of it in Ghost Protocol, unfortunately, but as the series goes on, I think it's worth sort of examining. And a lot of it was born right here. Like, you know, like I said, you can knock J.J. Abrams and his, like, the way he jerks you around emotionally all you want, um, but he knows what he's doing. And a lot of the stuff that we have that keeps us hooked in to the character started right here in Mission Impossible 3. It's like he's yep. really good at getting you invested he's in like really good. We should I mean, do the Star Trek opening scene. <laughs> yeah. It's right. like 
it's cheating, but it's like, it, it works. I am a massive Alias fan. Massive. You know who else is a massive Alias fan? Tom Cruise. Mm-hmm. That's how J.J. Abrams got this job. Right. Because the first two seasons of Alias were out, and Tom Cruise binge-watched them, and he was like, hang on. <laughs> and he knows what he's doing. That's a spy show about a father and daughter. And it's really compelling. We should, someone remind me, do like a dream, an all-star movie <gasps> director, like break it. Like if you were going to have a movie and you had to choose a different director for like act one, act two A, act two B, act, I don't know, some, something like that. I think right. it'd be really fun to see who you'd slot in for which structural parts. That sounds like fun to me. I don't know. <laughs> that is the most Michael challenge ever. <laughs> We could also imagine a Mission Impossible 3 as directed by its original director. David Fincher. David Fincher. David Fincher. What? You didn't know this, Michael? Oh. We he was all, attached. We literally all knew it, except wow. for you. Wow. Creative differences. It would have been a very different franchise, I think. <laughs> you didn't create yeah. Alias, which <laughs> yeah. is different from what I just decided I wanted after my binge. Interesting. Yeah. It'd be fun to see Fincher do some action. Yeah. Michael? Yeah. Mine will be quick, which is just, I love... In Ghost Protocol, when Ethan realizes he has to go outside and Benji's like, yeah, you just go outside the window, it's fine. Ethan is apprehensive and he is worried about things. And I like a hero that is worried about dangerous things. And I feel like that's an aspect of Ethan that I think continues on and I really like. And I think it, it, especially when you know a real stunt is about to happen. I feel like mm. giving, making the audience worry, giving them breathe. I think they talk about this in like the prestige also, right? Like give give the audience a reason to doubt it. Uh, don't just go out there and do the thing. Like make people worried and lean forward. And I love that Ethan is worried at times about the crazy things that are going to happen as opposed to, you know, like a rock in a Fast and Furious movie, shall we say, where he'll just walk <laughs> a through rock. a wall. Uh, Not or, the rock, a rock. Yeah, no. and any old Just rock, any a rock, for example, or even Diesel, or you know any of these other people that is like a Momoa, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? A Mirren, <laughs> a Theron, where there's a like, Lee Jones. <laughs> anyway, you get my point. I like it when protagonists are worried because also the. In Mission Impossible 3, this is another difference where I think in in Act 3 of, of 3, when they're planning this heist, the time frame that Damien gives is, it's 24 hours, and then they got to fly to China, and then it's like the night before, and they're like, oh yeah, we only have like two hours to, to, to plan this heist, and you people are not worried enough. Like, it is not possible yeah. to do anything in two hours. This movie, anyway, so I think it's important that the characters in your story be appropriately worried for the situation that they're in. And that doesn't happen enough, in my opinion. Right. I mean, it's something we talked about with uh, with Edge of Tomorrow, where Tom Cruise is like, you know, he's like, he's like, you're going to this mission. And he's like, no, I'm not. He's like, yeah, you are. And he's like, but wait, but I don't want, you know, it's like seeing, specifically seeing Tom Cruise, like, worried is, is like, like well, if because he's worried. Right. right. And I think that's a, it's a, it's a generous thing for the audience and it's like a non-egotistical thing. Like, I think we talked about it with like Indiana Jones also, Harrison yeah. Ford, like, Characters that don't have to just be tough and heroic and perfect all the time, but can be worried, it draws you in and it's good. Yeah, it's in uh, Fallout 
that the line is burned into my head where he's standing there and he's like, I'm jumping out a window. Like, <laughs> right. and he's so hesitant and doesn't want to do it. And he has to throw that chair out and then jump out a window. Yeah. It's like, <sighs> which sorry, we don't want to keep harping on this, but like, but I, it's just, I was looking at my notes and it's, it's a little bit similar to the making it, but just barely. Right. It's that sort of, it keeps things yeah. feeling real and grounded and, and in mission Impossible too. Um, Tom Cruise knocks out uh, the Duke from Moulin Rouge. And then like in the next scene, he drags them into a room and he has now made a mask for himself and Richard Roxburgh. And like they each are wearing a mask of each other. And like, when did that happen? Right. And then you go to three and ghost protocol where it's like making a mask is hard. It takes time. It doesn't always work correctly. The voice thing is messed up. Right. And it's, it's a little kind of the other side of the coin of what you're talking about, Michael, which is just like, if, if I feel like, if I feel like this might not work, then I'm going to be way more invested than if everything's just too easy. Yes. I, I gotta say too, last thing on this topic, but um, <laughs> Simon Pegg, I think is also, he, he his comedy plays perfectly into this, you know? Yes. So at the beginning of the movie, when it's like, I thought I said the Kremlin, you know, like, like he genuinely mm-hmm. plays that as like, that's such a silly thing, you know, nobody would ever say we would bring it to the Kremlin. And then you know, the Red Dead line where you just breeze past yeah. the Red Dead. I, I just think I think Simon Pegg is really well utilized in the setup to these sequences. His his comedic timing is perfect. Yeah. yeah. It's got that little bit of audience surrogate going on also where it's like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm used to you doing crazy things. Like, yeah, just climb outside the Burj Khalifa. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. the perfect yeah. set for that. What else have you guys been watching recently? Brian, what have you been watching recently? Sure. Um, I'm going to segue from our conversation and say Metallica is a band that I like. And um, a couple years after they did the song I Disappear for Mission Impossible 2, um, they were recording a new album that was the behind the scenes was filmed and turned into a documentary called Some Kind of Monster. Um, and this documentary is famous because it was the band was not getting along at all. And they basically like hired a therapist to like learn how to talk to each other after having been a band for, you know, 25 years at this point. And, um, there's just, it's kind of like, if you watch, you know, the, the, um, the Beatles, let it be uh, a documentary where it's just like every make it worse. Right. It's the, it's the mission impossible thing of they lose their bassist right before they start making this album. And then they are, just kind of miserable and yelling at each other. And um, the singer James Hetfield checks into rehab at one point and kind of just leaves. Like, he's just like, I don't know if I'm interested in this or if I want to continue being in this band. And you're just like, man, like it's the George Harrison moment from, from let it be. Um, And then they audition, they're auditioning new bassists and they're trying to just like figure out how to adjust and how to work together. And the reason I wanted to mention it specifically on this podcast, but I didn't think I was going to is it's so fascinating as a you know a screenwriter or a director or an actor to just observe the way people try to deal with each other especially when there's conflict and th- there's so many moments where there's the subtext thing of mm, i'm not going to tell you what i'm really feeling right now but i'm going to you're probably going to get that that's what i'm feeling but then there's this other layer where it's like someone says something combative, but they, because they're sort of fired up, they don't even know how to say it correctly because they're not even sure what they want to say. And now the other person is trying to translate the thing they said and trying to respond to it. Um, 
specifically James Hetfield and the drummer Lars Ulrich is just they're just constantly at each other and it's like I do find it I mean don't watch this documentary if you're not interested in Metallica it's not like I'm not recommending that but but I'm saying just any sort of you know just reality thing like hopefully a not you know that kind of reality television but something where you're just genuinely seeing people like try to figure out how to talk to each other and how to like win a conversation and stuff it's so fascinating compare and i think just like those kinds of lessons uh, observations if you put that into your screenplay it makes it so much more real than a sort of like i'm angry because you said that and like well yeah well i said that because i feel this you know and it's right. just it's like there's subtext and then there's this like even next level of i don't even know what i'm thinking or how to express it and then now you, but i said some words and now you've got to deal with the words <laughs> that i said so i just found it a fascinating watch for that reason um but yeah just just sort of a general if you don't watch this documentary just think about that when you watch people talk to each other or if you, you know if you and your partner have a fight or something like like how did that happen what did we actually say why did we say those things to each other that's not what we meant at all that that's so stupid um yeah, con conflict is interesting between actual real people, especially. So get into fights with people you love and take notes during it. Exactly. Yeah. Advice. Yeah. It's good advice. That'll, that'll help de-escalate the situation. Yeah, yeah. Taking notes, yeah. <laughs> what will happen if I say this? What's the name of the documentary, Brian? Uh, Metallica, Some Kind of Monster. Gotcha. Nice. Trisha, what have you been watching recently? So I rewatched a movie um, that I had seen only one time. Back in 2007, I did a special film program here in LA. And as a part of that, I got to go to a screening of a 1955 Spencer Tracy movie called Bad Day at Black Rock. And it rules. Um, that screening that I went to back in 07, I, there was a Q&A with uh, one of the screenwriters whose name I'm now going to look at because I want to make sure I get it right, um, Millard Kaufman. Uh, and at the time, he was like 90 years old and uh, because he wrote the Spencer Tracy movie in 1955. And he came to the screening with us in 2007 and he was answering our questions. And this man was amazing. He was like had the stories, had all the receipts, was like so sharp, so funny, um, absolutely incredible. And the movie Bad Day at Black Rock is also that. Um, it is a story about Spencer Tracy. He plays a war veteran who has only one arm. Um, and he goes to a tiny town in Arizona called Black Rock. He's looking for somebody specific. And it sort of actually turns into this story about like um, racism, I'm going to go with. Uh, but it, there's the town is concealing a secret. And it, it's like kind of a Western, but it has these like really interesting themes. And Spencer Tracy is excellent in it. Um, it's just a really taut, like sort of Western thriller, I want to say. Um, really, really loved it. I remember nothing about it except my experience listening to Millard Kaufman talk about making it. And, uh, he, I, I just looked it up today. He had passed away like two years after I saw him in 2007, after I like heard him give that talk. Um, he passed away in 2009 at 92 years old or something like that. And, um, 
what an amazing person. What an amazing movie. Uh, definitely recommend. So uh, there are a lot of other great Millard Kaufman movies for the record. Um, I went through his filmography and he's quite something. But Bad Day at Black Rock is also a great place to start. Very cool. Cool. Okay. Alex, what about you? So I am, as I probably mentioned before on this podcast, a big Star Trek The Next Generation fan. Uh, I grew up on Jean-Luc Picard and that whole uh, The Adventures of the Enterprise. Uh, and there is a new video game called Star Trek Resurgence. Um, it's kind of an indie game created by Dramatic Labs, which is a lot of um, veteran developers from Telltale Games, which made kind of, a, I think, a well-received Walking Dead series. Basically, these games are just mostly a choose your own adventure where you're just watching kind of like a episode. Basically, this feels like an episode of Next Generation with a new ship and a new crew uh, and just making choices. And you can tell the creators of this game are huge Star Trek fans, specifically kind of, I think, Next Gen, Deep Space Nine, that whole era fans. And it's like just a warm blanket of nostalgia. I just feel like I'm just back in my childhood in one of those classic Next Generation episodes. So if you are like me and miss those old days of Star Trek, um, I think you will really enjoy Star Trek Resurgence. Uh, it's a little buggy right now, but they're working on a patch. And so maybe at the time this is out, it'll be a little little smoother of an experience. But um, yeah, lots of nostalgia, lots of just joy in going back to that feeling. Love it. Nice. Yeah. Michael? So I recently watched Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves. <laughs> oh, so yay. enjoyable. Uh, I w kind of was eye rolling about it when I saw the trailer and just heard like, there's just so many ways this movie could be bad and soulless and a money grab and all these things. Uh, and it was delightful. It was a really... I, I, like you could take the script and do a bad version of it. And so I think I'm mostly just impressed that you could tell the people making it cared and wanted it to be good. It was more clever than it needed to be. The charm of the performances was, it was all there. It was just, it felt like just watching a fun movie that was just, it was a movie. And you know how much I love <laughs> yeah, it when what? movies are movies. <laughs> yeah. Just a, just a single movie that is fun. Yeah. And so, and if you play D and D there's, obviously like references and like nods to things that'll make you kind of like giggle to yourself but they weren't distracting and i watched it with my mom who had never played D D, and she didn't you know catch any of that so it's not doesn't disrupt from the flow uh it's a it, the story is actually a little bit surprising so i want to actually go into it um but it's it's a very charming fun little watch and so i, I definitely recommend Dungeons and dragons honor among thieves Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. It's great. Um, all right. Well, we have gotten pretty deep now into the Mission Impossible franchise. We have but the Macquarie films to discuss. I wanted to, I wrote down my mom's review because I watched three and four with my mom also uh, and asked her after each screening, like, what she say? what's your review? And for three, she said, there was a lot of activity going on. It's like, okay, good. Yep. yep. Accurate. I, that's a Accurate. very good summary, I think, of Vision Possible 3. Tom Cruise is an activity hero. <laughs> <laughs> What'd she say about four? Uh, nothing quite as like fun and quotable, but overall, she, she liked four also, but also nice. found it confusing. Um, and which part? Because that heist does get really confusing. 
Listen, the paperclip. <laughs> yeah. They needed him to take the briefcase with the paperclip with the actual codes. It's Return of the Jedi level nonsensical heist. Like, it's up there. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So we'll, we'll track the sense making of the heists and the convolution of the plots and the third acts and the Ethan Hunts and the action versus heists of all of it as we move into our penultimate episode on the franchise, uh, Rogue Nation and Fallout. So that'll be not next week, but the following week, because next week we're talking about <laughs> Indiana Jones and the Dial of <laughs> Destiny. Guys, there's a new Indiana Jones movie. We're going to watch it. We're going to talk about it. Um, reminder that if you want to hear our episode on Asteroid City, the new Wes Anderson movie that is out and waiting for you over on the Beyond the Screenplay Patreon. I want to say thank you as always to the patrons that make this show possible. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major, and our editors, Donovan Bullen, Caleb Berg, Graham Harther, and Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayeros. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi, and we will see you in the next episode for Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Bye, everybody. Mission accomplished. Bye. <laughs>